Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. How's it going? And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. How are you, man? Pretty good. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops, right or wrong, but mainly right. Uh, we also <laughs> want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, Martin Wallen and Robert Beck. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate that. If you'd uh, like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to support the show. And I think it's Martin Whalen. I may have pronounced that wrong. But anyways, let's get right into it. Hui, what do you got for us? Okay. The first question I have is from Clean Cut Woodworking. He originally asked a question uh, pertaining to what kind of finish to use for a particular build. Uh, I, I would recommend actually going back into our catalog. We actually did discuss that earlier, but he also included a question that I thought was really interesting. And a side question to this would be, how would you know when to use a dye or pigment rather than a stain or a particular type of oil on that project? So I thought this would be a really inter interesting discussion because I've actually never used a stain. I've mainly used dye. And the reason why I used a dye was because I had walnut that didn't have a nice even color across, across the tabletop that I was about to finish with some oil finish. So I used a dye that was uh, diluted with denatured alcohol. And the reason why I chose a dye was because I was told that dyes actually, uh, the color actually penetrates the wood a little bit deeper than, uh, say, a stain. And as far as I know, stains are either like a thin oil or water-based, pretty much like a paint. The pigment is, uh, is a solid and there's a carrier. And essentially that, that stain it doesn't penetrate the wood grain nearly as deep as you would with a dye. That's that's absolutely correct. Okay. The, the 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 pigment is what you're seeing in the stain. Right. That's just basically it almost looks like dirt, and that's right. just going to sit on top of the wood while a dye will will penetrate more. So this was kind of a something that I couldn't find the advantage of using. Like, what would be the advantage of using a stain over a dye? Because I was trying to figure out how I would prefer one over the other. Let's say you're using something like. I hate to say it, you're using something like construction lumber. Mm -hmm. And if you use a dye, it's going to penetrate more into the open areas than the more closed off cells. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're going to get very dark areas or blotching in the wood, which is very common. You see it all the time on like construction grade furniture. Mm -hmm. With a stain that has a pigment in it, it's going to sit on top. And it's not going to penetrate as deep in those other areas like a dye will. So the overall color will be more even. But you're also muddying the figure of the wood. And a piece like that, who cares? Sure. Sure. Well, <laughs> you're going you're going for you're color. Going for color. Yeah. You're going for color. Right. So that's where it uses and that's like a gel stain does the same thing. A gel stain actually sits on top of the wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've used gel stain a, a few times, even on cherry. And I was having a real hard time because it just kept blotching all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like pudding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean, you did a, a lot of experimentation on, on um, staining poplar once. Yeah. And my method, uh, which is one of many, is I first started out using a dye. And what that did was set the tone of the wood because poplar, of course, has a lot of different colors from green to purple to 
to white. So I used a thin, a, a dye, which is thin enough. It's going to penetrate deep and it's going to set the tone of the wood. And then I came back with a, a couple different things on one sample board with the gel stain, another sample board or the second sample board rather was a water-based stain. And it's, it's also pretty thick. The water-based mm-hmm. stain that I used from general finishes, it set the color of the wood to the perfect color that I wanted. And I didn't have to worry about fighting the different colors because the dye was thin enough that it penetrated and it set the tone. Yeah, of the, the general wood. finishes is not a stain. They call it a dye stain. Mm-hmm. They're water-based dye stain, which means it's a dye. Right. Even though it's got the crap on the bottom, <laughs> it's still a dye. Yeah. The sediment on the bottom, you still have to stir it, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, probably the best dyes I've used are the trans tint stuff from Jeff Jewett. And that's what I've used too. Yeah. Another thing that, you know, you talked about it a little bit there, Sean, was putting the pigmented dye or whatever it is on the, the wood and setting a tone for the wood or setting a color for the wood. Yeah, it was a dye. I'm going to do a little cross promotion here. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm on another podcast, as you guys know, called the Against the Grain podcast. And I'm on there with Freddie Roman and Justin De Palma. And Freddie Roman is a really good finisher. He's an extremely good finisher. He won't admit it, but he is. We had a gentleman on there. His name was Joshua Brackett from Brackett uh, Restorations down in Atlanta. And he spent about an hour and a half talking to us about color theory and how you're putting, you know, he's talking about the color wheel, the primary colors, the secondary, the tertiary, the complementary colors, you know, all that stuff and how you get to a color by not just mixing stain, but layering it, the colors. Mm -hmm. So if you have something, that's why you see people like putting green on stuff to get it more red or more brown. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense, but that's what you do. So that's that's a very good episode. We aired it about, I think about three weeks ago. I really recommend you check that out because there's a real good information in there. Yeah, it was really, really good. And I liked the part where he was talking about how to recover because something was too red, like you were saying. Yeah. So it, it's, just, it's packed with great information. You're probably going to want to listen to it twice. Yeah, it's a, it was a real eye-opening experience. Josh was just awesome. He was really prepared. I think he, he probably spent 10 hours preparing for that and he did a really good job. He really did a, an excellent job and he really did seem prepared for that that episode. Yeah, yeah. It, he you know he did a great job. Yeah, Sorry to go into the weeds there, guys. Oh no, that's okay. That's cool. That's all right. So I think, uh, I think we kind of talked a little bit about the advantages of using a dye over using maybe a stain and what, you know, what, what a stain establishes, excuse me, the dye establishes that tone, whereas the stain will sit on top and actually color the wood, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And you may be able to, to completely bypass doing the dye first before the stain and just go straight to a gel stain uh, and see if the, the color looks exactly you know how you want it because it's going to help fight against the blotching. Like God was saying, it sets on mm-hmm. top and you may get everything you need from that gel stain. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to control blotching, especially like cherry and maple. You, you, you sand it to a higher grit, mm-hmm. uh, which makes the top more resilient to the dye you're putting on there. And you can always seal it with shellac first and sand it back. That's another way. There's a lot of different things you can do. But always start with a, a practice piece. Yes. Right. Yes, yes, absolutely. And sand it to the same grit that you've sanded everything else to. That's a perfect tip because I can't tell you how many times I would do a sample board and I'm like, perfect, looks awesome. 
do the final piece and I sand it one grit higher. Now, of course, it didn't right. absorb as much because you're sealing it off. So you're going to get a different look. So stay the same. We could talk hours about this, but uh, I think we need to move on. Who's got the next question? I think it's you, Gus. Sweet. This question is from little Eric Clavenger. Eric's awesome. He's asking, what is the piece you've built that you are most proud of? Hmm. Piece I built that I'm probably the most proud of is my green and green wall clock. I think I've talked about this before. And the main reason is, is I've, I've never done anything green and green. And the, the wall clock is almost kind of almost a, a shaker like wall clock. And there's absolutely nothing out there like this. So I had to do all the design myself mm-hmm. and I really had to think not only about the green to green style, but making sure it was very uh, representative of the work that the, the, you know, green and green in the halls did. Right. And I didn't know anything about it. So I reached out to a bunch of people that do a lot of green and green stuff. Um, Steve Lyde does a lot of green. I talked to him, Tim Fuller. Yeah. Tim Fuller. And also Matthew Morris, if you know, Matthew. Mm-hmm. All three of those guys were a lot of help because I'm like building it and I'm posting pictures on Instagram. These guys are going, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at it right now. It's in my office. And and because just because I think the design came out really well, mm-hmm. everything looks exactly like I wanted it to. The color is perfect. The design may not be perfect or everybody's cup of tea, but to me, it's something I'm very proud of that I made because I designed it and actually looked good. Yeah. What about you, Lee? Well, it's got to be the sculpted rocker that I built alongside of Tim Fuller. Man, I learned so much from just spending a week in his shop and following him around and then him giving me tips on on how to how to cut at the bandsaw better, how to how to power carve, how to uh, use the rasp. I mean, everything that uh, that you could uh, learn <laughs> in a week. I feel like I it was just jam packed, and I'm most proud of that piece because of uh, how much we were able to get done in such a short period of time. We were really kind of kind of rushing through it, and it ended up looking really sweet, really beautiful. It was one of those dream builds, you know, something that I thought that I wouldn't do until maybe years later, but uh, the opportunity arose, and I took it and. It was just a blast to do, and, and I just learned so much, and so that's why I'm so proud of it is because I learned so much from it. Yeah. How about you, Sean? What are you most proud of? What piece? Probably the Queen Anne Low Boy that I made. Mm. It was very difficult because for me, I'd only been woodworking for about maybe a year and a half, two years, and it was an ambitious project. The feet were very, very difficult for me. The, the trifid feet, I think is what they called it. It was a very difficult project for me at the time and probably would still be today, but it came out great. Uh, I used some really nice cherry that I had uh, that was sitting in a barn for 40 years. So it's really, really dark and the grain is really nice. And But it's sitting at my parents' house right now and they get to enjoy it. And uh, it's probably the piece that I'm most proud of. One day I'd like to make another one. Nice. Well, okay. I think, uh, I think Sean, you got the next question, right? Yep. This one's from Brian. And he said, I've had, I've actually had several questions over the last few weeks, but never got around to sending them. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on using one runner versus two on a table saw sled. And, you know, this is just my opinion on the matter, but it just, 
it depends on the size of the sled and the material that you use for the runners. Uh, if the crosscut sled is smaller, uh, like a small parts crosscut sled, I think you could get away with one runner, especially if you're making the runner yourself. If you're using a metal runner where you can adjust the set screws to dial in the fit and the metal runner is long enough because you can get the, the different length on these runners. I know Inkra sells them, um, and I think Craig and a couple others sell these these miter bars. I think you could get get away with one on a decent-sized cross-cut sled, but personally, I feel better having two. To me, it just seems like having two runners is going to help prevent the sled from twisting and racking a little bit when you pull it back to put in a, a large panel to cross-cut. However, speaking of Inkra, they make a couple of different jigs that are, one of them is the iBox, and of course, the other one is an Inkra Miter 5000 which is a crosscut sled, and both of those jigs just run off of one miter bar. But again, the iBox is a really small jig. So personally, I would feel better with two if you can swing it. If you're making them, just batch out two. But depending on your table saw setup, if your miter slots aren't perfectly parallel, you may be forced to use one because you may end up with some binding. I would hope your miter slots are in parallel. It depends on what table saw. I mean, I've seen some pretty crappy ones in my day. I had had a skill saw that was... I, I doubt they were parallel, but it, you know, it depends. It, it could be a concern, yeah. but I would, I would shoot for two. Yeah. I, I don't really know if there's that much difference. I think the only, only thing you're getting with two is that it's going to be a little bit more forgiving if the runners aren't sized properly to the slots because you can mm-hmm. take up slop with the other yeah. one, if that makes sense. I have never built a sled or anything for the table saw that using two lighter slots at once um honestly I, I think it may be overkill that's just my opinion on it if it's if it's secured to the sled or whatever whatever jig you're using and your miter saws are parallel to your table saw blade it should be more than enough to to move it through there without twisting mm-hmm. i've used the Incra miter 1000 and i've attached jigs and whatnot to the miter 1000 to essentially make a specialty sled and i've never had any issues with uh with slop or slack and sort of what's nice a lot of these miter gauges or uh, miter bars that you might buy actually have the ability to size the miter bar specifically for your saw yeah and that's that's a really nice feature and we're talking about not to interrupt you but i'm going to (laughs) that's okay Even on my exalted Powermatic PM2000 top of the line saw, the miter slots were parallel and, you know, parallel to each other. And I could get them parallel to the blade very easy. The problem was there was inconsistencies in the thickness of the slots. Mm. Not huge, but just to get my miter gauge to slide through it properly and take up all the slop. Because I like to have it where the the miter gauge can actually be almost off the table. Mm -hmm. I'm just using like two of the little adjustment points. Yep. Not three. And to get that smooth all the way through because it was catching. Mm -hmm. Like in one spot, it would just stop. Like, ah. So I had to get the file and file that a little bit until it moved properly. I highly recommend those uh, adjustable miter bars. I think um, people that build uh, micro jig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They make one that's yep. very inexpensive. I think they're plastic. Yeah. Uh, high grade plastic, nothing wrong with plastic, but uh, I think they're very inexpensive, maybe 10 bucks or something like that. But they're yeah. they're pretty short. You can get the anchor ones up to, I think, 
19 or 20 inches, which are pretty long. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they can go down to like a foot. They have different ones available. Up until probably a year ago, I was always making my miter bars out of UHMW plastic. But man, you got to be right on, man. Yeah. And if you tighten the screw too much, it'll expand the, the, the material. Right. I think from now on, if I were to need a miter miter bar, I would just, just buy like 10 bucks. It's not, it's really in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. And you think of the trouble of trying to get like a piece of UHMW exactly the width that it needs to be for a miter bar, you know, piece of plastic. So but because of my relationship with anchor, I've got about, I've got a drawer full of miter bars <laughs> <laughs> for every single jig you'll ever make. And I use them all the time. Yeah. You know, and I, I would much rather have those than a piece of wood. So Hui, how many uh, runners did you put on your crosscut sled? I put two just because, but again, it's, you know, I put two because every single plan or every single crosscut jig, I uh, crosscut sled I've ever seen is used two. Yeah. And well, and what I was going to say is, I mean, I would, I personally put two on mine just because, well, I, I take that back. I do on larger sleds because some of these sleds that, that people make are as large as the tabletops. They're right. huge. Right. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Something like that, that big. I'd yeah. probably use two also. But an Ikra box or something, like I'm going to be making a uh, crosscut sled coming up pretty soon for small parts, and I'm only going to be using one because it's small. But, you know, if I'm putting, if I'm able to cut a 24-inch wide piece and I'm pulling it way back, I would feel more comfortable with two. Can I ask, can I, I want to be kind of a jerk. Sure. <laughs> so I'm prepping you for it. Why do you need a small parts crosscut sled? Why don't you just use your miter gauge? To cut small parts? You can cut small parts with your miter gauge. It's easier. I mean, <laughs> say I need to say I need to set up a one inch piece that I need to cut over and over and over. The miter bar, miter gauge only goes one side of the blade, and I personally like crosscut sleds for small pieces because a, it's going to bring the piece back to me, and b, I just find it easier to clamp with a, a fence on both sides of the blade. I find it easier and have more options to clamp stuff. Right. I hear you. I like I like using a crosscut sled too. There's just something about using the crosscut sled that brings the offcut piece back that just makes me feel, you know, feel better and more comfortable. Yeah, it's got it's got full support of the 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 cutoff. But I, the way I'm going to be doing it is u- utilizing the small parts sled instead of a, cro- a miter gauge, um, unless I need to cut, you know, like a miter or something like that, and then using the Incra 5000 for larger panels. Yeah, yeah. All our gadgets. <laughs> yep. That's uh. That's what I've got. Um. We, you're next, I believe, right? Yeah, I've got a question from Scott from Jackson, Tennessee. As a hobbyist on a tight budget, I generally get new bits at the big box store, but sometimes I can look at them while they are spinning and tell that they are not spinning straight. They seem to do the job, but I'm always wondering if having better bits or possibly a better drill, I guess, is worth the money. So um, I have a direct experience with this, and that's why I chose this question is I got actually one of those... I guess you would call them like a bit index with a whole bunch of twist bits, you know, relatively inexpensive. You get a big box store. It's got every single size between one sixteenth and uh, and an inch and, or excuse me, a half an inch. What I noticed is that the, uh, the Brad point on all of them was not, uh, was not concentric. So in other words, I would start in the center of, of a hole and it would just wander. So it would make the hole actually bigger than it needed to be. It was a drill index with Brad Point bits in it? Yeah. Really? It was really cheap. <laughs> it was like yeah. 20 bucks. <laughs> the drill indexes I'm, I'm familiar with, they're, they're mostly like metal oxide ones, and they're 
general purpose with just a point on it. Yeah. V. Oh, like a, like a twist bit, right? Like twist bit, yeah. Yeah. This was actually a drill index with Brad points. I just couldn't use them. They were just horribly inaccurate. So uh, I had to buy uh, some new bits. And I, I have noticed a big difference between the, the second set that I got. It was a Woodcraft set. Uh, set. It wasn't didn't have like as nearly as many bits. And it was twice the price. But the bits are extremely sharp. The point on the Brad point is dead center of the bit. And I think it's actually worth investing the money in good Brad point bits because uh, there's nothing worse than you get to the point of just doing like a, a flat bottom hole and the top surface of it is just all mucked up. So I, I really think that it is worth buying the more expensive bits. Now I do understand from the, from the get go, you know, not having a lot and being on a budget, getting that drill index with the twist bits. I mean, I've definitely gotten those from Harbor Freight and it's, it's real attractive. It uh, is. You're getting, you're getting eighty thousand or eighty, excuse me, eighty million bits for twelve bucks. I've got a set of a good set of Forstner bits. They're actually mm -hmm. carbide tipped. I bought them a long time ago. They're still yep. very sharp. But I've got a, a set of just general purpose bits that I really don't use for woodworking. Right. Just around the house and stuff like that. They're Dewalt bits. Mm -hmm. I think I paid twenty dollars for the set, and there may be a dozen different sizes in there. But for woodworking, I've got a set of seven bits, right? That go, I think, from a quarter on up to a half inch, mm -hmm. and they were like fifty dollars for these seven bits. But they're they're straight, they're sharp, and they in a drill press, they're just awesome. And I, I bought them from Lee Valley. I can't remember the brand. I said, I have I have a set of those and well worth every penny. And I rarely use the DeWalt bits in the drill press unless I'm drilling metal. Right. But, but for at-home use, uh, I think it's definitely something fine to use. I mean, I, I use the cheap bits for, you know, home DIY type projects and yeah. whatnot. But... But if I'm doing a piece of cabinet or or piece of fine furniture, I'm I'm going to use my good bits. Yeah, the point I was making before with like that set of seven bits, mm -hmm. I've never wanted for any other sizes. Right. It's not like, damn, I don't have this size because they're all you know, it's all generic stuff. You know, quarter inch, seven sixteenths, five sixteenths, three eighths, yeah, five eighths. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's pretty standard stuff. Yeah. So I primarily use the Brad Point bits that I got from Lee Valley. They're probably the same ones I have. Yeah, the the high speed steel lipped Brad Point bits or something is what they yeah, call it. Like yeah. yeah. Um. And I just bought a, a few bits at a time as I needed them because I didn't want to buy, you know, a set of thirty of them or twenty eight of them or whatever for two hundred dollars and only end up using about four of them. So I just bought what I thought that I would use, had those on hand. And, you know, I've got maybe six or seven of them that I use. And if I have anything outside of that, I do have some some cheaper bits that I will use that I very rarely use. So they're they're decently sharp and they do an okay job. As far as Forstner bits are concerned, I, I bought a kit from Woodcraft probably five years ago. And uh, I still use those, although I need to replace those. And I will probably upgrade uh, just the ones that I need from that set to, to newer, nicer Forstner bits. But I believe that, you know, just buy what you need at the time that you need it, unless you come across a really good deal. But the, the nicer bits are going to last longer and, and leave a cleaner cut. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
buy what you need when you need it. It's well worth you get those cheap bits, man. You're trying to drill a three eighths inch hole to put a doll in and you got a yep. perfect size three eighths inch doll and then you go stick in there. It's got a little slop and it. it's like, what the hell? Yeah. And it's because the, the drill bit isn't perfectly straight or you have a problem with the chuck in your drill press, but right. it's typically the bit. Exactly. And you know, they're sharp, they're, they're dull and that means they're going to start burning. And so if you can afford it, get the nicer ones when you need it. Yeah. Well, all right, guy, you got the next one. What's got, what do you got? All right. This is from Gregory Roski. Ryeski. Ryeski? Yep. He, uh, he was the, my shout out last time or the time before. Yeah. He's, I started following him and he does some really impressive work. Yeah. He writes, hello, guy, Sean and Hui. I am about to begin, and I don't know why this guy's asking us for advice. He's asking him for advice. <laughs> I'm about to begin making two solid walnut dressers, and I would love to hear your input on web frames. I've seen a few methods for attaching them to the casework, such as sliding dovetails, shallow dado grooves with the frames glued at the front of the case and floating in the back, and screws with elongated slots to allow for the casework to expand independently of the web frames. One of the dressers will have two columns of three drawers with the vertical center divider in the middle, and the other is five drawers high. You have to kind of envision that. Each case will be 18 inches deep with dovetails as the joinery. How would you guys go about attaching the web frames? And he thanks us for all the uh, valuable work we're doing. And he did send some images. If people aren't familiar with what a web frame is, is when you have a, a like a dresser, in between the drawers, there's a frame, and it typically holds the drawer up in some cases. In some cases, they actually put a, a solid piece of wood in there, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it's used as a dust frame between the, the uh, drawers. I've done lots of web frames and dust frames in my day, believe it or not. And the way I always did it was the way I saw actually Norm Abrams do it, where he built the web frames with uh, mortise and tenon mm -hmm. and he always left slop in the rails that are going towards the back so that if the case expanded and contract that piece would be able to move inside the, the tenon or inside the mortise does that make sense yep yeah and he would glue he would glue the front of it and that's the way i've always done it now i've also taken that piece and put it towards the back and in the front i've used a you know, I've made the, the web frame out of, let's say, poplar or secondary material. Yeah. And on the front for like that, where it attaches to the middle or to the side. And these are all held in by dados, by the way. Mm -hmm. I've put a separate piece in the front the, that might be the same, that's the same as the primary wood. And I've put it in with sliding dovetails. Right. I've done that quite a bit. I've never done the sliding dovetail on my desk, my green and green desk. What I did for the web frame was actually use the domino. I had put the, the frame together using dominoes, the front and the back being attached to the sides. And I actually used did you glue, it. Did you glue it together? I did glue it together. But then on the back or the front, I used uh, the front of the web frame that's attached to the carcass. Uh, uses a domino and then the back has a domino that's attached to the rear of the web frame but the uh, carcass actually has a slightly wider domino slot and so then I would I would glue the web frame to the front uh, and not put glue on the back so that it could expand and contract independently from each other while still keeping the front of the web frame flush with the carcass. Wow. 
<laughs> is, is that too elaborate? <laughs> no, I don't think it's too elaborate. I've just never seen it done that way. And I think, I think it's a lot of unnecessary steps. Maybe I, I can see using the domino instead of making mortise and tenons. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea is that, that that frame has to be able to move with the case. Mm -hmm. It's not a cross grain situation, but it can't be locked in there. Right. It's got to right. be able to float a little bit. And that's why I've always put it in dados and glued it in the front and then put mm -hmm. the, the primary wood in front of it. Yeah. In this, in this case, the dominoes that attach the f web frame to the carcass, the front domino is glued in, whereas the rear domino uh, with the elongated, the wider domino slot is able to move sort of independently, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, from, but you're, from attaching the it to the, you're attaching it to the back of the case? No, I'm attaching it to the front. You're not putting anything in the back of the case? Oh, the back of the case has a domino too, but it, but it, but it's elongated. Okay, you don't need to do that with dados. You just put the dados in the, in the, in the partitions or the sides of the case. And you just slide the damn web frame in and glue it in the front. And glue it in the front. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's all you got to do. You're not putting anything to the back. For the most part, I've uh, done what Guy mentioned with the with the sliding dovetails in the front, gluing it in the front. So pretty much same exact method of, of what Guy mentioned. I don't have a whole lot of experience with doing that, but the one time that I did, I used that method. So you know that I'm using an elongated domino hole on the carcass and not on the web frame itself, right? Yeah. Does that, am I making sense? I guess maybe I'm not. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, no, it's, I, it, I, I understand what you're doing. Okay. 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 To me, it seems doing. very similar to, to the same thing as like doing the dado and just attaching it to the front with the sliding dovetail and allowing the web frame to move independently from the carcass, but still locked into that dado, right? Yeah. The thing with the dados is that dados are, if you have a good dado stack, dados are extremely easy to make. Mm -hmm. They're extremely accurate and also they're very, very repeatable. So when you're building a, a carcass like that, letting in a web frame uh, a quarter inch or three eighths of an inch into the, the, the side of the cabinet, and they're all going to be in the same spot because you run them all at the same time over your table saw. Right. They, they're just going to line up. Everything's going to be square. It's a really easy way to do it. Mm-hmm. And you do, like I said, if, if you want to, you can do a stop dado with a router bit and put a sliding dovetail in the front. Right. Or you just cap it with another piece of wood. It doesn't have to be a sliding dovetail. It can just fit into the dado also. Right. And you don't even have to square up the dado necessarily if you make it a little bit longer than the actual uh, piece that you're going to insert into that, uh, into that yeah. dado, right? Well, there you go. You got a couple of different options on that. Let us know what you decide to go with. I'm pretty sure he's going to like blow it out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He does good work. Really good. Very good work. He uses a lot of walnuts, so it's going to be really nice. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I've got the, uh, the next one here and this one is from Ray. It's a couple of different questions here. Hey fellows, really enjoy the podcast. Tons of great information. They can't be gained from those who haven't been there and done that. I'd like to take advantage and throw two questions your way. Can you talk about potential disadvantages of putting the right side of your table saw up against the wall? I have a 52-inch saw stop and want to maximize shop space as I work out of a two-car garage that is about 500 square feet. So let's talk about this one first. The only disadvantage that I can think of, and you guys can chime in and, and tell me if I'm wrong, <laughs> 
is uh, <laughs> you, you, you lose the ability to put something like a router insert on the right side of your table saw. You can still do that, but you won't have easy access to the front of it because it's going to be up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one thing that, that comes to mind. And the second thing that I have is, you know, if your outfit table is a dual purpose table, meaning that you use it as an assembly table, you're going to lose access to one side of that. Um, so you're only going to be working on the, the back end of it and the right side of the, of the, uh, outfit table, if you use it for an assembly table. So those are a couple of different things that I can think of. Can you guys think of any reason or, uh, any disadvantages of putting it up against the wall? I think egress. Um, so I have my table saw with a 52 inch fence against the right side of my garage. And the main disadvantage is that I can only go around it in one direction. Like I don't have access to that side. Uh-huh. And, and it just would be nice to be able to just move 360 around my table saw. Yeah. I, I deal with it. You know, but it and it, and it's fine. It's not a big deal. I'm the same same way, but my, I have to put mine in the middle because I've got that Ankra fence. Right. And if I move that over, that beam sticks way out, so you really mm-hmm. can't put it up against the wall. But actually, even without that, I would still have my table saw in the center for the exact reason you were just talking about. We right where you can walk around the thing, and I'm walking around mine a lot. But you can also put other machines up against there. You know, I've seen a lot of people that put their joiner on that on that edge, and then they put something else, you know, over here. And you can get like two or three machines in a central area where you just have one dust drop for your for your dust collection, and then you just split off there, and you know you have the blast gates. Well, let's let's talk about some advantages of putting it against the wall. And here's one that I thought about a lot here recently and that's because i'm now spraying finishes and paint and whatnot if i could put my table saw up against the wall that would allow me to put my bandsaw my joiner planer combo and my drum sander in the middle of the of my garage and those take up way less space than my five foot by four foot outfit uh, outfeed table as well as table saw and i can now take those three tools since they're on casters and i can throw it toward the back of the garage and have a really large open area in the middle versus two small aisles, one on each side of the table saw. So that's one advantage. And actually one thing that I thought about doing that would allow me to have a lot of, uh, not a lot of room, but a a big area instead of a lot of small alleyways near uh, in between tools. So that's one advantage in my eyes of putting it up against the wall. I don't know, man. I really wish my table saw was in the center. <laughs> I really wish I had well all around. I really, I, I can't think of. I don't know. I've never, I've never had my table saw up against the wall. It's always been in the center. Yeah, I mean, it definitely saves space for me, and I have to do it that way right now. But honestly, if I, if I had the opportunity, I'd, I'd put it right in the middle of my shop, man. Well, here's, there's a little difference. He's, he's got a, a, a shop. Of- a little bit bigger than mine, but he's in a two car garage. If think about this for a second, if you had just a two car garage, we mm-hmm. you would be working with a little bit less room, actually a whole lot less yeah. room. Yeah, you may think about that a little bit different because, guy, I know yours is a two car, but you got a little bump out that adds a little bit of room. I mean, can you think if you had just a little bit less room, how much like of a of an area in the center of your shop that you could have dedicated for spraying? Now, this is just spraying. If you're not spraying, of course, then it's you know, it yeah, doesn't matter. But I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a different situation too, though. So because I, I have a car parked in my garage every night. So I have my shop design not only so I can be efficient, which I'm not because I'm old <laughs> and slow, but 
everything. I only have to move three things right. to set up my shop. I've got my assembly table, my table saw, and my bandsaw. And that's it. And it just slides over. Boom. And when I do the spraying, I put up a piece of canvas attached to the, the, the rail of my garage door opener and wall off that half of the shop. So I've got the, the one car stall that I can use as a spray booth. Mm-hmm. And, if, and then I just go ahead and you know take it down and just move those three machines over and I'm ready to go. Right. I've had mine up against the wall as well as in the center, not being able to go all around the table and losing one side of my Alfie table did kind of suck. But now thinking about it, I've actually thought about moving it over there and just getting a feel for how the layout would be. I don't know. Um, but again, if you're not worried about having a big open space in the center, um, having your table saw in the center of the shop is not bad at all if you have the room for it. I will say this, me having my table saw up against the, the right side wall of my garage gives me the uh, ability to not have to move the table saw every single time. I can just keep it there and my wife is able to park her car inside. So the disadvantage is that I don't have that side. The advantage is I don't have to move the table saw every single time my wife pulls the car into the garage. Yeah. To be honest with you, me moving my table saw is a nothing. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a really good base on it. I just hit two levers and I can move the thing anywhere I want with one hand. I mean, it just glides across the floor. I only have to move it like 10 feet. If that, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's really easy. It's a, it's a nothing. Though. So I think what we may do is is uh, save his second question for maybe next uh, episode. Yeah. Okay. And finally, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. Guy, who do you have for us this time? I've got Tab Adams from Crosscut Vintage Designs. And he's on Instagram at Crosscut Vintage Designs. All one word, no underscores or anything like that. Tab is a local guy here. And I know him pretty well. And he is a day in, day out woodworker. I mean, he, he is, has a pretty decent backlog. He does a lot of stuff. And uh, he's a very good woodworker. He's got a great attitude. And he's got a really good Instagram page. I, I really enjoy his posts. So check yeah. him out. Yeah, he's really, really busy knocking stuff out. Yeah, he knocks a lot of stuff out, man. He's yeah, he's, he's got that down to a science. All right, so uh, my pick for this week is at Kyle, I may be butchering this, but K-Y-L-L-E-S-E-B-R-E-E. It's either at Kyle Seabree or Kylie Seabree. Apologize if I'm screwing that up. He is a furniture maker out of Carlsbad, California. Um, His designs are very elegant. He really pays Mm -hmm. attention to the grain and the color of the lumber and and just how it flows through the project. Uh, It just creates a beautiful piece of furniture. The designs are really clean and minimal, and you know I think that you will enjoy his feed. So check him out, K Y L L E S E B R E E. Hui, what about you? My feature for this week is Elizabeth at W underscore squared two. So that's W underscore S Q U A R E D two. Elizabeth is man; she dabbles in everything from spoon carving, bowl turning, to green and green furniture, and I particularly. Uh, was attracted to her feed because of her green and green entry table, which was absolutely gorgeous. And she does quite a bit of 
uh, green and green stuff. But, you know, she really kind of puts her own flair to it, which is really sort of neat to see her take that green and green style and then kind of put her twist to it and do it a di- little bit differently than maybe what we uh, we are traditionally seeing from uh, from green and green style. But uh, but I really like her stuff and I think you should check her out. Yep. And speaking of her, she um, entered a green and green inspired entryway table in my last simplecove.com contest. And she actually won first place. Uh, Mark Spagnolo picked her as the winner. Very, very beautiful table. Yeah. She she did a great job on that. And speaking of uh, Simple Cove, nice little segue there. I wanted to talk briefly about a contest that I just launched. It is the Q2 2019 woodworking contest. You have until june 14th to enter your projects for a chance to win one of three awesome prize packs so go to simplecove.com and then you'll see a banner at the bottom of the homepage to learn more about that i think that'll do it for this show please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community so if you have questions you would like answered on the show you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or don't forget you can dm us through instagram at woodshoplife We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in search rankings, and of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you, Hui? Where can we find you? AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. How about you, Guy? Guyswoodshop.com. Awesome. Thanks, fellas. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Great talking to you. Adios.